To support this podcast, go to positivesarcasm.com slash donate. Any amount is appreciated. Once again, positivesarcasm.com slash donate. Thank you and enjoy the program. Almost like it never existed, but it fucking did. So do me a favor. Go f*** yourself. Donate any amounts appreciated. Check out the Weeble app. The affiliate link's in the description down below. There's the Merchware page. Uh, you can just simply donate, positivesarcasm.com slash donate. If you want to contact me, go ahead. Uh, Instagram, at positive underscore sarcasm. You can also hit me up at facebook.com slash sarcasm. The video version of this podcast is available exclusively on Rumble. Go to rumble.com and hit up positive sarcasm. Of course, the audio version is still available anywhere where podcasts are available, including Substack. So go ahead and check me out there. Questions, concerns, comments, of course, email me directly through my website. I remember late 80s, Chernobyl, reactor blows up. It ultimately led, due to the lying and the deceit, and the cover-up and everything like that ultimately led to the fall of the great Soviet Union. I mean, they were already on thin ice to begin with, but it seems like the link between Chernobyl and Wuhan is broken when you talk about the fact that the Soviet Union has fallen, whereas China seems to have plenty of strength behind it. And it seems like the agencies who supported this whole situation, i.e. the Wuhan lab, are only gaining power. The NIH, the CDC, and the WHO seem to be gaining much more ground, much more control, binding agreements, uh, according to uh, our friend over there in the Great Britain area, um, Dr. John Campbell. Thank you. Remembered his name, just in the nick of time. Moving on. Seems like they're only gaining steam. Seems like they're only gaining momentum. Seems like they're only gaining power and gaining control in their own dystopian Orwellian uh, way. And just completely denying everything. Saying, we don't know. There's The jury's still out. There's no reason to strongly believe. It's just like deferring, deferring, deferring. It's like, look, let's just look at the facts of what we know. And let's just put this, turn this conspiracy theory, quote, into conspiracy fact. So... According to the, I know that the Wall Street Journal just blasted a huge article saying, hey, this fucking happened. We know it came from here. Stop denying it. Well, the just dropped today from the New York Post. It's an op-ed, but let's go ahead. Of course, it's still technically an opinion that this virus, okay, Came, it's still an opinion that it came from the lab. It has not been confirmed. Oh, plenty of people have confirmed it with all the evidence. But we've been barking about this since May of 2020. That this has happened. That this is where it came from. And China's denied it. And, Wuhan, and WHO's denied it. And Anthony Fauci has denied it. And blah, blah, blah. And everybody in your fucking mother's denied it. Okay, fine. Let's look at the top 10 reasons we know that the COVID-19 leaked from the Wuhan lab. So, let's go ahead and pop through that, shall we? All right. The evidence is clear. Pandemic, here's why. Irrefutable, irresponsible science. The suicide of Wuhan lab collaborator Dr. Yusin, a key Chinese scientist who collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Biology. Dr. Zhu Yusin, remember that name, 
filed for a patent for COVID vaccine on February 24, 2020, according to documents obtained by the Australian. The early timing of this, of this filing raises concerns that the unnamed vaccine was in development months before the COVID-19 pandemic became public. Yet less than three months after filing this, his patent, Dr. Yusin died under mysterious circumstances. The Chinese media said he died from, quote, falling off the roof of the Wuhan lab. Moving, moving on to number two. The Wuhan lab workers were the first COVID patients. In April 2020 interview, I told Fox News that an infected Wuhan lab worker was most likely patient zero of the pandemic. The National Institute of Health called it a conspiracy theory, and Facebook and Google censored it, calling it misinformation. New evidence published this month confirms that what I said was true. Now, when he says I, I want to point out who this person is. This is Marty Macri. So what he says New evidence published this month confirms that what Marty said was true and identifies the first infected lab workers by name. Moving on to number three, the lab had a detailed plan. One year before the emergence of COVID-19, scientists at the Wuhan lab submitted a detailed research plan to the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency to create a Frankenstein coronavirus. The virologists cited their preliminary research showing they were able to do it. They proposed engineering a furring cleavage gene into SARS-like coronaviruses to enable the virus to infect mammalian cells. The exact That's exactly the genetic makeup of COVID-19 and what makes it so deadly. Their motive had may have been biodefense related, but it most likely was based on the ancient scientific myth that such research could help predict a future pandemic or enable a vaccine before a pandemic occurs neither of which has ever happened. The researchers also submitted proposals to the U.S. State Department, but Secretary Tony Blinken has denied multiple requests to make those grants public. Number four, China destroyed all records from the lab. Keeping a lab book to record all experiments is a standard and universally adopted convention in science, but remarkably, remarkably, who'd have thought? There are no lab records for the key coronavirus experiments performed at the Wuhan lab. There are no source samples. Researchers who experiment on viruses do, however, routinely report those genetic sequences to an international virus registry housed by the NIH. The NIH, of course, led by, just re until recently, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Wuhan lab researchers had re reported viruses sequences to the NIH registry, but then called in June of 2020 to ask for that information to be deleted. The NIH honored the Chinese request and promptly deleted the virus sequences to the NIH registry. Gee, I wonder if that would have been of any value. Number five, top virologists had told Anthony Fauci that it came from a lab. On January 27, 2020, a panicked Dr. Fauci called an emergency meeting of top virology experts to talk about the origin of COVID. Three of them told him they believe it came from the lab. Dr. Robert Gary of Tulane University specifically told Dr. Fauci, I just can't figure out how this gets accomplished in nature. Dot, dot, dot. Of course, in the lab, it would be easy to generate the perfect 12 base ins insert that you wanted. So, told Dr. Fauci, way ahead of schedule, what had happened. Number six, 
Fauci was the orchestrator of the natural origin theory. At the end of Fauci's emergency meeting with virologists in January of 2020, a consensus was reached to, number one, don't write a paper at all, and two, if you do write it, don't mention a lab origin, as that will just add fuel to the conspiracy theorists, to the conspiracists, excuse me. Four days later, some of, the, some of those same virologists who voiced their belief that COVID came from a lab co-authored a propaganda article in Nature Medicine, including concluding emphatically that COVID is not a laboratory construct. This is, is this the article right here? Yeah, Fauci sneered at lably concerns after pushing paper to disprove theory. White House Select Subcommittee pandemic released evidence Sunday that Fauci ordered and helped to edit and gave final approval to the paper titled The Proximal Origin of SARS-CoV-2, which was published on February 17, 2020. Exactly two months later, Fauci used that same publication to wave away concerns that the virus might have come from a Chinese facility. Anyways, back to here. Um, four days later, some of those blah, 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 concluding emphatically that COVID is not a laboratory construct. The lead author wrote in his cover letter that the article was prompted by Dr. Fauci and Francis Collins, then head of the NIH. By April 16, 2020, a frustrated Dr. Collins emailed Dr. Fauci about the lab leak theory. One, quote, wondering if there is something, to the, something the NIH can do to help put down this very destructive conspiracy. Fauci replies, I would not do anything about this right now. It's a shiny object that will go away in times. Number seven. China arrested the first doctors who treated COVID. The Chinese government, who arrests everybody, but then again, so do we, uh, government promptly arrested the first doctors at the Wuhan hospital who treated COVID. Dr. Li Wenliang, who is most likely the doctor who cared for the first infected lab workers. He sounded the alarm on human-to-human -human transmission on WeChat, the popular social media messaging app in China. Three days later, the police showed up and detained him and eight others. Lee was forced to sign a confession that he was making, quote, false statements, false comments. The statement read, we solemnly warn you, if you keep being stubborn with such impertinence and continue to see legal activity, you will be brought to justice. Is that understood? Lee responded in writing, yes, I do. Soon after, Lee contracted COVID and died. He was a healthy appearing 34 year old uh, a risk profile close to zero. It's also curious that there were conflicts or conflicting reports about his death on Chinese state TV. Dr. Ai uh, Fen, a close friend of Li, carried his torch and continued to war people. She was the director of the emergency department at the Wuhan Central Hospital. She also posted warnings and was later reprimanded by the authorities. She gave a pleasant interview to a Chinese magazine and then went missing for a few weeks. Getting awfully suspicious here. Number eight, a lab leak caused the 1977 flu Chinese epidemic. There is a precedent for the lab leak. In 1977, there was an epidemic in China of an influenza H1N1 strain that had the same genetic code as a flu strain from 20 years prior. The epidemic, the ep this, the epidemic turned into a pandemic. Flu viruses are genetically fragile by nature, making it impossible for a strain to last over 20 years outside of a lab. Just before the 1977 pandemic, the Chinese government was injecting military recruits with a mysterious substance. A famous Chinese physician had subsequently admitted the introduction of the 1977 virus as the result of vaccine trials. 
an estimated 700,000 people died from the flu strain that year. Number nine, the lab is five miles from the world epicenter. One of the only labs in the world manipulating the coronavirus was right next door to where we can trace the beginnings of the pandemic. What a shocker. The wet market was blamed, but testing of large swaths of animals revealed no animal source. Finally, number 10. Wuhan Institute of Virology claimed to be a biosafety level four lab, the highest standard. But in 2018, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing took the unusual step of repeatedly sending U.S. science diplomats to the Wuhan lab. They found the lab functioned at level two at best. In the words of U.S. virologist Dr. Richard Ebright, the biosafety conditions were comparable to that of a U.S. dentist's office. What's wrong with dentist's office? And anyone who's worked in that lab, and in a lab, as I have, will tell you that in most labs, accidents can be common. Conclusion. Former U.S. National Intelligence Director John Ratcliffe, who had access to all intelligence during the rise of the COVID-19, has said, My informed assessment as a person with as much access as anyone to our government's intelligence has been and continues to be that a lab leak is the only explanation, explanation credibly supported by our intelligence, by science, and by common sense. The facts are clear, but downplaying them has become a political stage for many Democrats, but let's just say whatever. The origins of COVID represents the greatest liability case in the history of the world. People understandably want closure after enduring tremendous societal harm. It's time for the U.S. to be an international leader in calling for a treaty banning all dangerous gain-of-function research using the principles in a 2016 National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine report setting standards for the virus research. The document identifies seven types of pathogen research that should never be performed, ooh, never be performed given the risk to humanity. The experiment types became known as the seven deadly sins. The Wuhan lab was committing some of them. We need to prevent what happened but when, uh, when Fauci continued to fund dangerous gain-of-function research despite President Obama placing a moratorium on it. An updated position paper outlining specific types of gain-of-function type, type of gain research that has carefully been laid out by Dr. Laura Kahn in the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. The framework should be adopted internationally in the form of a treaty with active monitoring and verification. Uh, this guy who wrote the paper, Marty McAray, He's a professor at John Hopkins University of School of Medicine and is an author of The Price We Pay. I'm curious. The seven deadly sins. Um, I'm going to write, I'm going to grab this and I'm going to search for that because I want to know more about that item. Um, What is this? This is uh, the threat of Graham. So basically seven types of pathogen research that should never be performed given the rest of humanity. Okay. So let me grab this. Okay. Let me type in seven deadly sins and then seven types of pathogens. And let me see if I can find data on that. Uh, or cardinal sins is a blah 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 Christian teachings, groundwork Bible studies of biomedical research. Okay, all right. I think we I think we've landed on something. Let me see here. 
All right. Even back in 2021, May 23rd, 2021, Wuhan lab staff saw hospital care before COVID-19 outbreak disclosed. Right fucking there. Jesus Christ. All right. The seven deadly sins of biomedical research. The risk of gain-of-function research. How long is this? Okay, this is definitely a good talk here. The risk of gain-of-function research on a pandemic potential pathogen such as SARS and MERS uh, outweigh the benefits. Greater oversight of biosafety, biosecurity, and biorisk management in laboratories must be done by an independent national agency that doesn't perform or fund research. Like Icarus flying too close to the sun, some scientists in laboratories have been pushing the fates of creating pathogens, i.e. microbes that make people sick, that are more dangerous than those occurring in nature. Other scientists and policy experts, myself included, have joined forces to call for improved oversight and in some cases the banning of gain-of-function research on pandemic potential pathogens, also called enhanced potential pandemic pathogen research. Um, once again, so for those of you who don't know, which most of you do, gain-of-function research involves giving microbes such as bacteria and viruses enhanced capabilities that they may not normally possess in nature. The research currently receives almost no national or international oversight. Not all gain-of-function research is dangerous. For example, turning harmless bacteria into insulin-making machines is beneficial and cost-effective for treating diabetes, and most bi biomedical research has resulted in substantial improvements in medicine uh, and public health. However, the, the subfraction of gain-of-function research that enhances the risks posed by pandemic potential pathogens, such as avian flu or SARS-CoV, deserve closer scrutiny and oversight. With a, with a case fatality of uh, rate of approximately 56%, the avian influenza virus is much deadlier than SARS-CoV-2, which is an estimated case fatality rate below 2%. The, H in the avian influenza virus first emerged in Hong Kong in 1997 from infected birds, uh, but was unable to spread readily from mammal to mammal. Once a pathogen gains the ability to spread easily from mammal to mammal, the risk of it spreading to humans increases. Enter Ron Fouchier, a virologist from Erasmus Medical Center in the Netherlands. He, in, two, in 2011, he and his colleagues decided to give the avian influenza virus the enhanced capability of airborne spread between mammals. He wanted to see what mutations the virus might need to acquire starting a pandemic. He chose as the experimental animal because he chose ferrets as the experimental animal because they are susceptible to influenza viruses and develop influenza respiratory diseases like humans. The experiments were performed in a biosafety level 3 laboratory, one step below the highest containment laboratories. That feature containment rooms and spacesuits. After introducing mutations of the virus, uh, Fouchier performed serial passages, a form of selective breeding of the viruses and ferrets, to obtain a novel mutant virus that are efficiently transmitted by, from aeros by aerosol from mammal to mammal. The most prevalent reason asserted for conducting gain-of-function research on pandemic potential pathogens is to be able to predict future pandemics. In other words, by creating a novel potential blah 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 in laboratories, scientists like Fisher would be able to recognize them in the wild before they spill over from animals to humans. That's a theoretical argument anyways. According to Georgetown University um, biomedical research article. The reasoning is flawed. To be more to more clearly state this in, in, in analysis, let's examine weather forecasting. Predicting hurricanes is a purely observational exercise that implements satellite data. Scientists don't manipulate clouds to, to see what conditions are needed to start hurricanes. 
They also use atmospheric and climate models instead. In similar fashion, scient uh, scientists could employ artificial intelligence and machine learning tools to predict viral evolution instead of manipulating viruses in labs. This entails a risky gain-of-function research on potential pathogen, which is not necessarily not a necessity in predicting future pandemics. Concerns about risky bio research prompted the National Academy of Sciences to issue a report in 2004 titled Biotechnology Research in the Age of Terrorism, listing seven experiments of concern, recognizes the seven deadly sins that should not be pursued if they create pathogens that are already clearly present that are not already present in nature. These experiments include demonstrating demonstrating how to make a vaccine ineffective. Two, demonstrating a pathogen's resistance to antibiotics or antiviral agents. Three, enhancing a pathogen's virulence, i.e. lethality, or making a non-lethal microbe lethal. Four, increasing the transmissibility of the pathogen. Example, making a non-airborne pathogen airborne. Uh, number five, altering the host range of a pathogen by increasing the number of species it can affect. Six, enabling a pathogen to evade diagnostic testing. Number seven, enabling a biological agent or toxin to be weaponized. The avian influenza virus studies involving ferrets involved experiments four and five in the list. According to the NAS, these experiments should not have been done. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, the causative agent of the COVID-19 pandemic, this jury is still out regarding the virus developed and how it spread from animals to humans. But understanding the origins of the virus is imperative to the development of effective policies and procedures that re can reduce the likelihood of such catastrophe from happening. Both SARS and MERS, which emerged in 2003 and 2012, respectively had extensive clinical specimen evidence from animals and humans demonstrating a natural spillover event. Clinical specimen evidence includes either the virus itself or antibodies that make that bodies make to attack the virus, like microscopic missiles. So let's continue further down here. Um, the key evidence for natural spillover for both SARS and MERS was clinical specimens from occupational exposures, working with evidence that harbors zoonotic pathogens, microbes that can spread from animals to humans, increase spillover risk in the animal workers. One health approach, integrating human, animal, and environmental surveillance is essential for monitoring future natural spillover events. In contrast, neither the SARS-CoV-2 virus nor antibodies have been reported in animals or animal workers. No studies involving clinical specimens have been published in the medical literature that fulfills the criteria for a natural spillover event. In early 2020, George Gao, a former director of the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and his colleague conducted a non-peer-reviewed study that found zero out of 450 clinical specimens taken from 18 species of animals in the live animal market in Wuhan contained the virus. This Chinese conducted surveys of thousands of people to assess the rate of antibody prevalence in SARS-CoV-2 in the general population. Unfortunately, none of these studies included occupational data, including eliminating a critical factor in determining natural spillover risk. In addition, no studies have been published examining SARS-CoV-2 antibody rates in laboratory workers at the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The window to assess differences in rates between the laboratory workers and the public when such differences 
would still exist closed it would still exist closed in early 2020. Public record, however, indicates that SARS-CoV-2 was genetically manipulated at the institute itself. 2016 and 2017, researchers at the WIV constructed novel chimeric SARS-related coronaviruses that combine the spike genes of different SARS-related coronaviruses. A chimera possesses genetic material from two different organisms. The spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, which is used like a key to enter cells, has a highly unusual feature called a furin cleavage site that is not present in more than 200 other known SARS coronaviruses, making it highly infectious. While furin cleavage sites occur naturally in other coronaviruses, the SARS-CoV-2 furin cleavage site has a particularly unique sequence of amino acids. This feature has been subject to much debate with some scientists demanding a full investigation into possible laboratory origins, while others stress that there is no evidence. Scientists must be science must be transparent to maintain its legitimacy. An immense debate, such as the warrants of full investigation into virus origins, especially since there's no compelling evidence for a natural spillover, stonewalling such an investigation engenders suspicion. And one of the big things about this whole pandemic was don't ask questions, do what you're told, or else, which only raises more questions, only raises more doubt only raises more resistance to what they're telling us to do. And a lot of the seven deadly sins here that they're talking about, um, this last pandemic uh, absolutely breaks some of them. Now, I don't know if it enabled the pathogen to, innate t- uh, to evade testing, but it was weaponized maybe by accident, but altering the host of pathogen by increasing the number of species it can, inf- can infect Increasing the transmissibility of the pathogen, absolutely. Uh, it was already lethal enough. So SARS-CoV-1 was already lethal to some extent. By making it mobile, you made it more. You didn't make. You may have made it maybe a less lethal, but it's more lethal because more people can get up, more people can be infected with it, especially unhealthy people, especially unhealthy people in the United States. So. Moving on here, I'll finish up with this last point. Bio-risk management involves risk-benefit assessments of proposed high-risk research on dangerous pathogens that qualify as one of the seven experiments of concern. From 2014 to 2016, the U.S. government imposed a pause in federal funding for gain-of-function research. Federal funding. SARS, MERS, and influenza viruses. As with biosafety and biosecurity, same federal agents that performed gain-of-function research of pandemic potential pathogens are also in charge of bio-risk management. An inherent conflict of interest exists, and the system is opaque without public scrutiny or input. In all three cases, biosafety, biosecurity, and bio-risk management oversight must be conducted by an independent national agency that does not perform or fund research. Oversight regulation should be transparent. Transparent, excuse me enforced and harmonized at the international level. Given that the uncertainty surrounding the origins of SARS-CoV-2, it is prudent to cover all bases in developing policies to to prevent another catastrophic COVID-19 pandemic. Courtesy of Laura Kahn, who's a physician, author, educator, and consultant. So, let's think about this for a second. We've been lied to about the from the very beginning. Whether or not masks worked, 
where the virus came from, who was responsible for it, the denials from Anthony Fauci, the vaccine efficacy, the lack of side effects quote. We were suspicious of all of it. We claimed all of it. We were right about all of it. We don't necessarily know the WHO's involvement. We do understand the NIH's involvement, who was led by Dr. Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins. So we understand that large organizations, especially in the United States, were involved or at least funded this situation that occurred that shows up in the seven deadly sins. A hundred percent. They lied about all of it. It completely goes against everything. And here's the thing is that China won't admit to it because of the liability involved. But the question is, is how can the federal government, our federal government, admit any type of involvement without us being without them being sued? Because the NIH is a is a federal organization. So I mean, sure, maybe Pfizer and Moderna uh, produced, you know, they got an agreement where they can't be sued. Okay, fine. But the federal government can still get sued. The people who were in charge can still get sued. If you absolutely, 100% knew of the circumstances in which you were putting in place was going to cause health and safety problems, um, and you knew that all the research you were doing was based on lies. So you basically created uh, antiviral drugs and antiviral medications and policies based on facts that were not correct. Understanding that this did not come from a natural occurrence, but this came from a lab in which you funded, can alter the course of the scientific research that's taking place as we speak. And literally it was all about covering your own asses. And to this day, biomedical research, as far as gain of function, is still being done. Still being done. Still a threat. I don't know what else they're working on. I don't even know if the Wuhan lab is open. I have no fucking clue. I know Wuhan is supposedly open. But I can tell you this. I don't know what to believe anymore as far as I believe that the people who lied to us are up to no good. And they don't have our best interests in mind. I believe that the WHO and the, and, and the NIH do not have our best interests in mind, refuse to tell us the truth, and are looking for binding agreements that when they say something, when they say they tell us to do something, we have no choice but to do it. And it has to be enforced all the way down at a local level. And they are working, according to Dr. John Campbell, they are working on binding agreements so that countries literally have to bow to the WHO's will. You know, it's funny is when Chernobyl collapsed, when Ch Chernobyl fucking exploded it led to the soviet union collapsing but yet with the wuhan leak lab leak this has not caused uh china to collapse it has not caused uh the who to lose any to lose face it, or well lose face but they still have major control the nih still out and about cdc still out and about and nobody's in jail so the downfall of Chernobyl has yet to take place. The lawsuits, are there any lawsuits right now? Are there any COVID lawsuits at this time? COVID lawsuits, are there any at this point? 
Um, government slammed with 500 applicant class action lawsuit over COVID vaccine injuries. BioNTech faces hundreds of lawsuits in Germany over COVID vax side effects. BioNTech is owned by Pfizer. COVID vaccine injured class action lawsuit filed in federal court of Australia. Uh, Tyson asks U.S. Supreme Court to shield it from COVID-19 lawsuits in Iowa courts. Vaccine backlash. Calgary oil giant faces dozens of, law- dozens of lawsuits from former employees over COVID-19 shot. Um, ACLU lawsuit accuses ICE jailers of denying detainees vaccines. Lawsuits show vol- vulnerability of residents at New Jersey nursing home when COVID struck. Refu- refugees lack COVID-19 shots because drug makers fear lawsuits. Uh, GOP lawmakers lead lawsuits against Connecticut COVID. COVID lawsuits and inquiries are looming, but but blame won't prevent future pandemics. So Ontario court certifies that uh, certifies class action against insurers related to COVID-19 lawsuits. So lots goings on in the whole COVID front. So we know it came from a lab. We knew it was gain and function. We knew that the masks didn't work. We knew that the dr- a lot of some of the drugs were bullshit. We knew that remdesivir didn't work. We know that the vaccine has side effects. We know that ivermectin. Uh, we uh, ivermectin is the jury is still out on that because I did do an article, but apparently it got debunked. But I believe as a prophylactic, ivermectin does work that way. It is an anti-parasitic drug. It is a pull. Uh, it is a Peace Prize winning drug. So. Um, I know that there's hydroxychloroquine. I know there's uh, stem cell. There's other cell, cellular type of uh, 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 treatments um, that have helped people recover quite well. So this whole thing will drag on for years to come until the problem is, is people still believe what the TV is telling them. And I can tell you 100%. That shit that's coming out of the TV is just processed, manipulated garbage. You have to accept the fact that the conspiracy theory is conspiracy fact. And that all these things that I've been concerned about, like, eh, maybe it's a bit too stretched to believe it. I'm starting to believe all of it. I mean, with the exception of, like, space is fake and flat earth stuff. But for the most part, I'm starting to believe that everything that's being put out and if it's even a pinch mainstream, it's bullshit. I don't believe the authorities. I don't believe the big uh, the big newspapers. I don't believe the big mainstream. I don't believe them. I think they're all full of shit. And there's lots of not ever mounting evidence from day to day to day. That seems to be the case. But then again, how the hell do you turn a China into a Chernobyl? And I'm not sure you can. And if anything, I think they're only going to get bigger. So, uh, that being said... I would like to switch my uh, turn my time over to uh, a dig.com Q&A uh, thingy before we get out of here. Uh, if you have questions, concerns, comments, go ahead and hit me up there through my website, positivesarcasm.com slash donate. Any amount is appreciated. You can also hit me up on Rumble or, or of course, uh, you can email me uh, through through Instagram at positive-sarcasm. You can direct message me there or email me directly, positivesarcasm at outlook.com. Let's go ahead bang out a few Q&As and we'll get out of here for the day. Here we are. Uh, I am a 28-year-old male. I've been dating my girlfriend, Nancy, who's 25 for about two months. Nancy describes herself as a bit of a mean girl. I honestly thought she was joking for a while, as she typically is quite nice. 
However, she has an awful tendency to insult people based primarily on their appearance. These insults can happen anywhere and anytime. It can be targeted at literally anyone. Okay. Of course, she never says these things about the person right in front of them. The other day, I invited Nancy to a family, fam a family friend's house event. A family friend's event we were having. My mother's friend, Sarah, had just gotten out of the hospital for cancer. Sarah's family and family and my family are very close. I've known them since I was born and consider them to be extended family. Oh, very good. Due to cancer and chemotherapy, Sarah no longer has hair and is very thin. Once Nancy saw her, she started smirking. I literally pleaded with her not to say anything rude, and she agreed, but told me that I was ruining her fun. Fast forward, I'm chatting with my mother and my sister. Nancy walks by and says hello. She chats for a bit before starting to make several highly offensive jokes about Sarah and her appearance. I will not repeat anything, but her jokes mainly pertain to baldness and anorexia. My mother and sister looked mortified, and so was I. I literally had my jaw hanging open for a good few seconds. Uh, once I stopped, once I snapped out of it, it was firmly told. I firmly told Nancy to stop, and that no one found her shitty sense of humor funny except herself. She got upset and said that I was being controlling and misogynistic for trying to silence her. I maintained my position, reaffirming, reaffirmed that her comments were insane. She got even more upset and asked that we leave. I said it would be rude for me to go, as it was still relatively early. And she ended up leaving on her own. Okay. Um, poking fun at people is perfectly fine. It's one of those things that helps us kind of lighten the mood despite sad situations. But it seems like, according to you, that she clearly doesn't make jokes. She clearly just insults. And has a knack for just wanting to put people down. So... Um, this person, uh, needs to be out of your life because it just seems like they're just, all they do is they don't know how to punch any other way than down. Now, don't get me wrong. Punching down could be fun, but if the jokes aren't funny and they're never landing, then you're just a dick. And quite frankly, this chick doesn't need to be around you. If, she, if quite frankly, if you don't want to be around her, then maybe she just has to go and that's the end of it. And, you know, there's there are room for jokes to be made. Believe me, these people who are going through this this chemotherapy type stuff, they could use a little levity in their lives, even if it's at their expense a little bit. But apparently, but I'll tell you this, at the very minimum, your girlfriend or hopefully soon to be ex-girlfriend um, is not the one making the needing to make those those take that train, take that mantle. They're not they're not the ones for this. So, uh I get what the writer's saying. The writer has a lot of good points. Let's move on to the next one. What should I do after I invited my friend to see a Broadway show with me and she said she'd rather give my ticket to her husband? I understand that friendships change after having kids, but right now I am feeling used by my oldest friend, Allie. Allie is a three-year-old son. I love the little guy. But the only time that Allie has ever responded to my texts or calls is when she needs to watch him, needs me to watch him. Otherwise, it is just a non as just non-responsive texts or last-minute cancellations. When I talk to Allie, she brushes me off with the excuse that she's a busy mom. For Allie's birthday, I got two tickets for a Broadway play in the city. We always had a tradition of doing this together. Um, 
Allie was excited about the tickets, but then she told me she'd rather take her husband and have me stay and babysit her son. So I'm very hurt by this. I would be happy enough to babysit so that they could go out, but these tickets were expensive, and it had always been something we'd do, we did together. What should I do? I'm very tempted to cancel one of the tickets, make up an excuse, and just go by myself. This person seems like they've kind of started to get like abusive in this relationship as far as like freeloading. Um, it's probably time to be like, listen, uh, have a chat with them. Be like, listen, this is bullshit. I'm not a fan of this. Um, either fucking knock off your behavior and try something different, or we're probably going to be traveling on separate avenues for the foreseeable future. Let's move on to the next one. What should I do after my sister-in-law took in her aging parents and, against my wishes, renovated to accommodate their, their disabilities? My husband's elderly parents moved in with my sister-in-law. Their house was sold, and my sister-in-law used the proceeds to add a bedroom and upgrade a, and upgrade a bathroom for them at our house. There was an extra bedroom in the house, but no bathroom on that floor. My husband asked my sister-in-law not to make these improvements. He suggested hiring aides to come to the house instead, but she went ahead and spent all the money. Now my father-in-law has been diagnosed with dementia and needs a lot of additional care. We are being made to feel that he, we have to pitch in financially. How would you approach this dementia, of this dilemma? Excuse me. Um, well, look, your your husband's, the case of the husband's elderly parents moved in with the sister-in-law, house was sold. Like, you're going to have to help in some way, shape, or form, whatever it happens to be. Um, fam it, it is the end of the day family, and you're going to have to figure out what you can do to assist. Um, obviously, nothing backbreaking, but in either case, you've got... These, rel these older relatives need some assistance and you have to figure out a way to make their later part, the later parts in their life where they're not doing so well as comfortable as possible. Let's move to the next one. Should I take on an extra part-time job so my husband can use our savings to buy a condo for his parents? Wants to buy a condo for his parents. While I understand he wants to support them, it means it's a substantial chunk of our life savings. Meanwhile, they still have to work, not been saving much, and plan extended regular vacations abroad. We still have to get our kids through college and have struggled with unexpected expenses. They also derailed our budget. When I express my concerns, he dismisses them and suggests I pick up a side gig on top of my full-time job. He also mentioned that we will co-own this new property as an investment, but I'm still wary of this plan. He also intends for us to cover HOAs and property taxes for them, too. Um, so, yeah, it seems like there's some, so if you have your own investments and your husband has his own investments, it might be important for you to just go in and check and see where your money's going and see where your investments are going and start being a little more independent. I get it that it's important that, um, you want to purchase he wants to purchase a condo for his parents to own he wants to take care of his parents and he's working on really trying to make that you know a thing but and i get it you still have the whole kids in college shit um so at this point um i don't know there's gonna have to be some compromise between the two because it, it between two kids in college and your own budget and then a condo Oof, all signs point to disaster. You're not going to have any money to be able to, like, you know, do other things like expand your own funds and pay down your own debts. It's not a, it's not a step in the right direction. There's got to be another way out of this. 
Uh, that being said, we're at almost 45 minutes. We're going to go ahead and close up shop for this week. Uh, if you guys have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can email me directly at my website, positivesarcasm.com, or you can hit me up through Instagram at positive underscore sarcasm. Like, subscribe, share, donate, positivesarcasm.com slash donate. Any amount is appreciated. Uh, available exclusively on Rumble for a video version. Audio, anywhere where podcasts are available, including Substack. In the meantime, thank you for listening, watching, and subscribing, and I'll talk to you all next week. Recorded here from the Spare Parts Studio, this has been a Positive Sarcasm presentation.